Kids in Taiwan are finally back at school, and their first lesson: COVID-19 prevention. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's take a look at the stories that have been on our radar this week. This week on the radar, Taiwan now has 32 cases of COVID-19. The five most recent cases are all in the same family. As of Thursday, the global total reached nearly 82,000 confirmed cases. 2,800 have died from the virus. Taiwan's schools reopened their doors on Tuesday. That's after the education ministry decided to extend winter break by two weeks to fend off COVID-19. If one student in a class contracts the virus, then the entire class will be suspended. If two people in a school contract COVID-19 within a 14-day period, then the school will be closed. Taiwan evacuated 19 nationals who were aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship last Friday. That's after the British-owned cruise liner was quarantined off the coast of Japan's port city of Yokohama for two weeks. More than 700 people on board the Diamond Princess are confirmed to have contracted COVID-19, and four have died. All 19 Taiwanese passengers tested negative for the virus. National Taiwan University's College of Public Health announced that COVID-19 may have a household infection rate eight times that of influenza. Based on Taiwan's data, the household infection rate for COVID-19 may be as high as 46%. It says that number can be lowered to 20% if members wear face masks and wash their hands regularly. The Transitional Justice Commission has created an online database of court files of nearly 10,000 victims of political persecution. This comes as Taiwan prepares to mark the anniversary of the February 28th or 228 incident of 1947. That violent suppression of an uprising led to thousands of deaths during what would become known as the White Terror period. The public can now search online for the victims and more details about the cases. President Tsai Ing-wen's approval rating has skyrocketed to 68.4%. The latest numbers come from the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation. It's a record high performance for Tsai, who saw her numbers dip below 20% when her party lost big in the 2018 mayoral elections. Premier Su Zhengcheng and his cabinet have an approval rating of 69.4%. There's good news when it comes to the treatment of COVID-19. National Taiwan University Hospital is set to start clinical trials of an antiviral drug called remdesivir. Now, remdesivir was originally developed to treat patients that have Ebola. However, it's also shown promise in treating patients that have COVID-19. Now, this past week, we also learned that Taiwan has come one step closer to being able to mass produce this drug. Researchers at Taiwan's National Health Research Institute, or NHRI, announced on Wednesday that they've managed to synthesize one gram of remdesivir, a drug that's shown promise in fighting COVID-19. Researchers have worked around the clock to increase the quantity from just one milligram five days ago. Now with one gram, they can pass on the technology to a pharmaceutical manufacturer. Once the manufacturer produces a kilogram of remdesivir, with approval, the drug can enter mass production. But what about the side effects? Dr. Chen Jungtong, the head of the research team at NHRI, says that clinical tests in China have already entered the third phase. There are more patients being tested there, he says, so we will soon know more about the efficacy and the side effects of the drug. This past week, the world watched as COVID-19 spread to more countries around the world. Let's take a look at some of the hotspots. 
Now, the virus originated in China in Wuhan. That's the red that you can see there,、uh, and that continues to be the location of the majority, the vast majority of the cases and fatalities. It then spread to Japan and Singapore. Now, the latest hotspots that we're looking at include Iran, Italy, and South Korea. Now, Taiwan has raised its travel advisories for travel to some of those countries. And that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. Taiwan's Centers for Disease Control is cautioning people about traveling to countries that have been affected by COVID-19. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to talk to you about those travel advisories. All right, sixty seconds. Are you ready? I am. Go. All right. First of all, if you've seen travel advisories with different colors, those are. The Foreign Ministry System, which warns about everything from health issues to political unrest. Now, the CDC advisories are related specifically to diseases, and they use numbers, not colors. Let's have a look at the、uh, advisories for COVID-19. Now, level one: watch out and respect local prevention measures. Level two: stay alert and take precautions when traveling. And level three is a warning to avoid non-essential travel. Now, in the past week, Taiwan raised advisories to level two for several countries. In Japan, confirmed cases surpassed 100, including numerous cases of community infection. Iran saw cases surging past 100; it now has more fatalities than any other country outside of China. And Italy saw a spike in cases, becoming the hardest-hit country in Europe. And South Korea has also been raised to a level three, with the number of cases second only to China. Good job. Thank you. So I think there are also some quarantine measures for people returning from those countries. Right? Can you tell us about that? That's right. So if you've come back from a country、uh, that is a level one or level two travel advisory country, then you need to monitor your own health for 14 days, and that includes things like wearing a mask, avoiding public areas,、uh, frequent hand washing. I mean, that's something that a lot of us should do. And taking your temperature.、Too. But they also have to take their temperature、right. twice a day. And if you notice anything or you have a problem, a Health problem, then you should contact one nine two two. Now it gets tricky when it comes to the four places that are level three warning spots, and again, that's China, Hong Kong, Macau, and South Korea. As of the recording of this program, if you've been in South Korea over the last fourteen days, when you come to Taiwan, then you need to go into quarantine for fourteen days, self quarantine at home, and there are very specific rules about that.、Oh. Yeah. So、uh, the tricky part is if you've been to China or Hong Kong or Macau in the last 14 days. Now, if you're a Taiwan、uh, citizen, you have a Taiwan passport. You come to Taiwan. You have to go into quarantine for 14 days. In your own home or somewhere else? It's also in your own、okay. home,、uh, unless you've been evacuated.、Mm -hmm. That's a different story.、Uh, if you are not a Taiwan citizen, then chances are very good that you will be barred from entry. Like outright barred from entry if you've been in China, Hong Kong, or Macau for the past 14 days. So you can't go. That's right. You can't come back. You can't come back. I cannot do、right. that.、Uh, now you need to check out the specific rules for people who are in transit. That may vary, and there you know could be changes. Also, if you're a China,、uh, you have a Chinese passport.、Uh, chances are very good you're barred from entering Taiwan, like altogether, regardless of whether or not you've been in China. Hong Kong or Macau for the last、wow. 14 days. So it's.、Wow. I mean, there are a lot of rules, very specific rules. I would recommend people have a look, and we'll have some、uh, links for you below. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. That is our Taiwan Explained for the week.
In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to be talking about how schools are working to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Are you going to school us? Yeah, I'm going to school you. <laughs> She always does. <laughs> okay, well, the first thing they did was to keep the students at home for an extra two weeks, right? Yes. So... The students have enjoyed the longest winter break in the history of Taiwan. Really? Yeah. Wow. So how long was that winter break? Oh, That's man. the question. How many days? She's asking like the two people that don't have kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, Andrew? <sighs> no, I was, I, I'm going to talk to you. 24 days? Okay, 24 days. Oh, we're doing it in days, not a week. Days, yeah. Okay, I'm going to say, I think it was like six weeks. Six times seven is... 36? 36. 24 and 36. Okay, before we... That feels really long. (laughs) Before we get to the answer, let's take a look at this video about um, schools reopening. Children in Taiwan are back to school, but school life has changed. Many schools are using new ways to prevent disease, like these dividers. At Daja Elementary School, every student has their own divider to prevent the spread of viruses through airborne droplets. During lunchtime, the children keep a distance from each other when they're eating. Some schools don't allow their students to talk to each other during lunch. This mom says she's so worried about her kids going back to school, it's affecting her sleep. She used to celebrate when her kids went back to school, but now she says she has a lot more anxiety. The students need to disinfect their shoes before they enter the campus and get their temperature checked. Windows are kept open so fresh air can come in. And now each class has a sanitation monitor. He says his responsibility is to disinfect the classroom, from doorknobs to desktops. The sanitation monitors are in charge of keeping the classroom clean. As children play dodgeball, Taiwan schools hope they can dodge any outbreak of COVID-19. Okay, so Taiwan students have enjoyed the longest winter break in history. You said... Wait, can I just... I want to save myself here. I said 7, 6 is 36. I meant 42. So you want to up your answer? Uh, well, your let's, guess? let's say between 36 and 42. Okay. All right. If it's that, then you, you got it. And you said... 24. 24. Let's take a look at the answer. Oh. 32. That's quite a long time to have your kids at home. I meant 36, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, question number two is that, you know, um, they're getting drilled into how, how to wash their hands, which is a five-step process, which is great. It's something we should do all the time, right? right. Yes. Um, now, according to the WHO, how long should we spend on this five-step process, which includes rinsing and scrubbing, uh, lathering, scrubbing, and wiping off the faucet? I know the answer. I know you're very good about washing your hands, and that's <laughs> why... Uh, I know that... In seconds. Okay, you go first. In in seconds. Because I know the answer. Are we saying, like, from dirty hands to clean hands, how long does that process take? Yeah, including just, like, turning on the faucet, wetting your hands, 45 seconds. 45. Wait, including turning on the faucet? Yeah, the whole process. I thought you just meant, like, There's a range, actually. It should be 20 seconds while you're actually scrubbing. Oh, Oh, I... mm. (laughs) Okay. 42? 45. 45 and 20. 20. All right, let's take a look at what WHO says. 40, 40 to 60 seconds. seconds. What? Nobody counts the time when you turn on the faucet. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's a little disappointing. No, no, <laughs> I'm just talking about the actual scrubbing part. Okay. 20 seconds. Second, more or less. Cards on the okay. table. I don't spend. So, but I bet most of us I don't count spend that long. I count you can, the You can sing the alphabet a, song, actually. Oh. And that's about 20 seconds. Oh. So, all I right. sing it fast, though. Sing it slow. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, another thing that uh, schools are doing are keeping the windows open. 
And that's because the fresh air can replace the indoor air, right? That's mm -hmm. natural ventilation. Mm -hmm. So how long does it take for the fresh air to replace the indoor air in one room when the windows are open? How big is the room? Well, are we on average, about? okay. <laughs> how many windows are we talking about? <laughs> this is an average in, in a report that was in the news recently. Oh, so. Have you ever, like, just opened two windows in a room and just feel a whoosh? I yeah. feel like it's really fast. It can be fast. I want to say five seconds, three and a half. What? Yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's really fast. If we're talking I'm about... I'm going to say I agree with you. However, I think if you want to get, like, air into all the nooks and crannies... Mm. <laughs> what are you going to do? A minute. The whole room. A minute. A minute. Okay, let's take a look at the answer. Right, Andrew is right, right yes. on the button. All right, good for you. Okay, our last question has to do with, you know, we saw on the video they have dividers, right? Some yes. of these schools. Mm -hmm. Because if someone coughs or sneezes, you could uh, get uh, infected, right? Right. So how far do you have to be from someone to not be affected if they cough or sneeze? How many meters? Oh, I or know. feet, you can do it in feet as well. I saw like a video on social media. It was like, it was something astronomical. You're like, kidding me. Don't scare me. <laughs> oh my God. You're it was scaring something me now. astronomical. <laughs> um, something we go like, what? Are we talking about sneezing? Sneezing. Coughing. Oh, astronomical sneezes. I think it goes up to like, oh my God. My gut tells me 15 to 25 meters. Oh no. Yeah. Stop it. I'm, I'm going to say it's like two meters. Okay. Two and 15 to 25. Yeah. All right. Let's take a look at the answer. Andrew yes. was doing very well today. Yeah, that's <laughs> why the social media lied to me. So that's like six feet, like me, maybe me and uh, Leslie there. So if I see you, I can affect you. If the windows are open and the breeze carries it, <laughs> right, you might right, get 15 right, to 25. Right, right, right. Well, you know, we might have a particularly explosive sneeze. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and that is Taiwan by number for the week. In today's Who in Taiwan, our mystery person is a shining survivor. Mm. Now, guessing today on buzzer number one is Andrew Ryan. <laughs> buzzer number two is Leslie the Owl. Okay, you guys ready? I have mm -hmm. 60 seconds to guess. Okay. This person won the Golden Melody Award Best Album with Religious Content for her album, You Are My Most Beloved. She's the author of parenting books. She has a master's from Columbia University. She's an award-winning pianist. She married an American pastor and missionary and returned to Taiwan as missionaries. Her father was a prominent democracy activist who was jailed after the Kaohsiung incident. Forty years ago, on February 28th, she was stabbed eight times in her home when she was just eight years old. The murder also stabbed her six-year-old twin sisters and grandma to death. Mm. When she was discovered, her lungs had been punctured. Many people prayed for her, and her doctors said her recovery was a miracle. The family murder was one of the most famous unresolved crimes in Taiwan. Last week, the Transitional Justice Commission published a report on its investigations. You know who she is, but you don't know her name, right? That's right. Yeah. I know she's one of the, is it Lin family? The Lin family. Uh, one of the daughters of That's the Lin right. family. Her, name, her Chinese name is Lin Huan Jun. Her English name is Judy Linton. This is the album, which she won Golden Melody Award for. Wow. She's, she's a musician. Um, she's a missionary. She's an author. And just this past week, there was news out about their case because mm. the Transitional Justice Commission um, looked into it after some more files were declassified. And what they stated was state security forces were likely involved, mm. but key evidence was destroyed, so they couldn't draw from conclusions. So the report said that the Lynn residents had been under surveillance 
and wiretapping for a year before the murders. Um, the piece of evidence that was destroyed was a recording of a telephone call from that home at the time of the murders to a wow. restaurant. Wow. And the National Security Bureau said, because they had destroyed the evidence, they had said that they didn't know about the murder at the time, but the commission said that's not true. Mm. And the commission said more files need to be declassified. Actually, the National Security Bureau has more files on hand. And they said not until 10 years later, so for national security reasons. So there, has, there are more files that need to be declassified to help That's a figure out this That's a really case. important, important story and a really tragic <sighs> story in Taiwan's history. Uh, and an important story when it comes to transitional justice, really finding out what happened. Exactly. Um, and, and her, her father uh, went into politics. Her father is Ling Yixiong, mm -hmm. and he was the first DPP chairman. Mm -hmm. So he was one of the Kaohsiung Eight. One of the, we actually, you know, Taiwan's democracy um, came because of people like him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we do have to thank him and to give him justice. Yeah, and again, uh, just a reminder, so his, uh, two of his daughters were, three, two of his daughters were killed, twins. Right, and she survived She survived, attack. and then the mother was the mother also was killed. killed at that, and at the right. time, Li Yixiong was not at home. He and was I in think jail. He, he was in jail. He was okay. being tortured, he was in jail, and then he went to jail for 12 years, and so she and her mother went to the America. Someone, a group of Christians bought their home from them after it was murdered, and it's turned it into a church. Today, right? Yes. Yeah. And then she became a Christian in America and became a missionary. Let me show you a picture of her family now. It's a sure. beautiful family. So oh, she has uh, five daughters. She's in the back second right. from the left. That's yeah. right. The left is on the back is her husband. They're in Taiwan. Um, they started a church here. And I've interviewed her, actually. Mm -hmm. And I've actually met them. They're a wonderful family. I think um, she's told me that what helped her heal was actually, um, you know, her Christian faith and her music. And I do hope that, you know, people can also try to find ways of healing victims, mm. you know, the, um, personal ways of healing. And I hope that the government can do more mm. for victims like these families. Well, this is a really great uh, who in Taiwan, especially considering tomorrow is 228, which is the, I think, 73rd anniversary of the 228 or February 28th incident of 1947. That's right. Um, and also the 40th anniversary of their Of this murder. happening. Wow. Yeah. So... Wow. Hopefully the government will continue um, to look into this case and declassify files and to help these victims heal. Well, we hope you enjoyed this uh, episode of Taiwan Insider. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, do leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. These days in Taiwan, you see a lot of people wearing surgical masks. That's due to anxiety over COVID-19. Now today, I speak with psychologist Michael Mulehi at the Community Services Center in Taipei, who gives us insight into anxiety. I asked him first if he thinks there's too much anxiety in Taiwan over COVID-19. Well, I mean, the thing with the situation now is that it seems that in Taiwan, you know, there is a pretty strong sense of fear about the situation. But I think it is important to keep in mind that that actually has helped Taiwan deal with the situation pretty well overall. Mm-hmm. You know, people are really careful about, you know, wearing face masks, washing their hands. Of course, the government has been very active in taking measures to keep everyone safe. Um, so I think certainly there is a pretty um, adaptive purpose in being vigilant about the situation. Um, and also in the recent few days, we've been seeing how places like Korea or Italy um, have really been taken aback by how quickly uh, the virus has been spreading. And I think, you know, certainly there's probably a big reason is because they weren't very vigilant. They weren't very anxious about the situation. That's true. Mm -hmm. So the anxiety actually is good in many ways, especially when we have experience with SARS. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we uh, do know how it spreads or how harmful it can become, right? Right, right. I mean, I think that's the important thing about anxiety just as a general human emotion is that it is, for the most part, normal. It is adaptive. Um, What we usually describe anxiety as is it's the feeling, the subjective emotion that corresponds to our body's normal response to uncertainty and danger. Um, And, you know, that's a universal part of life, right? We never know um, exactly what we're going to run into. We never know exactly the kinds of dangers that might await us around the corner. The issue with anxiety, though, is that us humans have a great ability to overthink things. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly where dangers may come from. We never know exactly what we may need to do to be ready to deal with a situation. And that's why anxiety sometimes is adaptive, but sometimes it really gets out of whack and gives rise to all these, you know, people can have difficulty sleeping, we can overthink things. That's what makes the situation really interesting is this kind of interesting double face of anxiety. So uh, you said it's adaptive. Does that mean that we can adjust our behavior to meet the threat in, in a practical way? Certainly, yeah, as individuals or even as societies do, such as the way that Taiwan as a society is dealing with the situation. And But when is it detrimental to our health, let's put it that way, <laughs> to be anxious? <laughs> I mean, our bodies in general do have a pretty good ability to cope with short-term bouts of anxiety. Anxiety becomes a problem when it becomes chronic, becomes long-term. Our bodies stay in a state of arousal, making it hard for us to undergo our normal biological processes, whether that's eating or sleeping. 
And when anxiety gets to that point, then we're starting to talk about anxiety being detrimental to our health. So you had said that anxiety is a physical reaction to a uncertainty or threat. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is this? I, I used to think it was a mental reaction and then the physical was maybe the side effects. So what is the difference there? In well, you know, you're touching right here on a really interesting question that has psychologists arguing for decades, which <laughs> is, you know, does the physical part come first and then the psychological part come second, or is it the other way around? Do we think ourselves into anxiety and then our body changes in the aftermath of that? So I think that is a really... Also, um, there's no answer. <laughs> You might have to get back to me in 10 or 20 years about that question. Physically, then, it's it's a heightened sense, state of alert, or how would you mm-hmm. describe it? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, one really good way of clarifying what anxiety is is to compare it with the emotion of fear. Now, anxiety and fear are very similar emotions. In fact, what our bodies are actually doing in these situations are more or less the same. What makes fear different from anxiety, though, is that there's something specific. There's a specific danger, a specific challenge that we know we are going to be facing. And what we're able to do in that kind of a situation, then, is prepare ourselves. Say, if I know I have a test coming up or I know I have a job interview you know, next Thursday, I can then start preparing I'll know exactly where it's going to be. I'll know exactly who might be doing it. And that will allow me to uh, take actions or make plans so that I can at least feel better prepared. Now, with anxiety, what's different there is there's nothing specific that we can do to prepare ourselves. And I think that's exactly the case with the coronavirus situation. We can't see the virus. We don't know where we might possibly pick it up or Mm -hmm. who we're around might have it. So it's kind of this invisible danger. We know we have to be careful, but there's nothing really we can do besides these common sense measures like wearing a mask or washing our hands. That's why there's no anxiety. It's an invisible threat, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think there are certain personalities that are more prone to anxiety or certain types of people? You know, anxiety is one of those emotions that's pretty universal. <laughs> Very few people out there who don't experience anxiety. I think in terms of anxiety, the key is actually who we're around, the kind of messages we're receiving. And so mm. if we are around people who are reinforcing either a sense that there are these invisible dangers out there that we could be exposed to at any time, or there's messages we're receiving that tell us um, how terrible things could be or how neurotic we have to be about (laughs) keeping ourselves safe, then, you know, us humans, we're affected by those kinds of things really easily, no matter who we are. (laughs) No matter how educated or Mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. rational we think we are, Mm -hmm. we could get uh, anxious from news reports or, or whatever, right? Well, what is your suggestion for how people uh, deal with anxiety in, in the current uh, situation here with, with the virus spreading around the world? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, 
mean, I'm no public health expert, so right. please, you know, to take anything I say with a grain of salt on, on one point, but, but certainly I think the anxieties you may be feeling about this, one excellent way to channel those would be into taking common sense measures to keep yourself mm-hmm. safe again, you know, reducing your exposure, not going to places like hospitals unless absolutely necessary, washing your hands, wearing a face mask when necessary. But beyond that, you know, I think it's become a kind of common sense point for good reason that it's usually good to reduce our exposure to, you know, news or social media when it gets beyond a certain point. And I think, you know, one thing about the current situation is there's so much news, there's so many people talking Mm -hmm. about the situation so a question to ask yourself is maybe, you know, do I really need to know exactly everything about what places are affected or how the infections are happening? Again, surely it can be adaptive to know if there's any imminent danger to you or your loved ones. Um, but a lot of the time we do mislead ourselves into thinking, you know, well, if I know exactly how many people in this country or that country are infected, then maybe somehow I'll be more safe, I'll be more prepared. When in fact, if anything, you're just exposing yourself to more and more pieces of information that are making you more anxious in a way that really doesn't help you. You know, there are there are actually serious dangers, but for the most part, at the time being, you're probably going to be fine. So, um, I mean, I know you're a counselor and you work mm-hmm. with people with their anxieties and mm-hmm. other issues. Mm-hmm. When are we at the point where we need um, therapy to talk to someone about this? I mean, what I would definitely advocate for is if you are feeling anxious in a way where it is hard for you to... You know, live your life in the way you want to, whether that be anxiety related to the coronavirus or about other things, then, you, you know, working with a therapist absolutely can be helpful for you. So certainly there's no issue at all with, with what you're saying. I guess I, w- I would say about the situation now is I would be surprised if it was you know, the coronavirus situation itself that would suddenly cause someone to become anxious. I think a lot of the time, again, as I mentioned with anxiety, it's more this kind of free-floating emotion that doesn't really have anything specific to grab onto. Mm-hmm. And the coronavirus is a perfect situation for our anxiety <laughs> to grab onto. Um, uh, but, but, but definitely, I mean, to feel normally a, a reasonable amount of anxiety about the situation, again, that's, that's not pathological at all. But if it's at the point where you're losing sleep, you know, you're obsessively checking the news about things, that is a good sign that what you're feeling is not terribly adaptive to the situation. And when that is the case, then talking with a therapist, uh, visiting your doctor even, may be a good idea. And what is the effect that therapy can have? How does it help people deal with anxieties? One of the major ways we have of working with anxiety is 
is to first clarify what it is that you're actually anxious about, what's really going on there. And again, to, to go back to what I said before, anxiety is it's often, it, it misleads us a lot of the time. We want answers to know why we feel the way we do, what's going on inside of us. And sometimes the answers we find for ourselves aren't, they aren't the whole picture. A lot of the time there's more going on in our inner life than meets the eye at first. And that's absolutely the case with anxiety. So when we do work with anxiety, it's, it's always a process first of identifying what's, what's really going on with your anxiety, but then working to see the bigger picture of what other things are going on in your life that are tied in with what you're experiencing at the moment. Wow. So once you're able to see that more clearly, you're able to face it? Can you put it that way? In a more healthy way? Yeah, I, would th- I think that's a definitely a great way of putting it. Um, mm. If we're not clear about why we're anxious exactly or what our anxiety is telling us, it's really hard for us to take any action or make any changes that would reduce that anxiety. So one of the first steps is almost always to become clear about what's really going on with the anxiety. What is it you're actually afraid about? And I think that definitely applies to the coronavirus too. I think a lot of people are anxious, but probably anxious for really different reasons. I mean, certainly some people may be anxious about, you know, what if what if I get it and then my kids are infected? That would be so, you know, dangerous. Or, you know, what if I get the virus and, you know, the hospitals aren't prepared to take me in or the doctors don't know what to do because there aren't the, the medications haven't been developed yet. I mean, certainly for your listeners, I could also urge them to think a little bit more about what it is you might be anxious about with the situation. And if you can clarify that, that can certainly be something to talk more about with people who might know more than you or the loved ones who you might be concerned about. That might go a long way towards reducing some of the anxiety you feel. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I think I feel less anxious just talking with you about this. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. That is Michael Mulehi, a psychologist at the Community Services in Taipei, giving us insight on anxiety. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination, the 19th century. More than a century ago, it was said that Taiwan had three treasures. These three products were sent round the world in ships to far-off markets, bringing home wealth in return. But two of these treasures, camphor and sugar, have long since dropped off the map. And now it's only the third, tea, that's still a true Taiwanese treasure today. 
Tea growing is still a major livelihood here in rural Pinglin, a place of misty tea plantations well over the mountains from the noise of Taipei. Here at the Pinglin Tea Museum, a new exhibit is tracing tea's long career in Taiwan, celebrating the rise of a product that made this island a household name. Through old photos and artifacts, it unpeels the layers of Taiwan's history and shows how tea has remained a big business for many generations. Today, we're following the museum back 150 years to trace the course of Taiwanese tea from shoddy local product to collector's item. Looking back, the idea of Taiwan as a tea producer doesn't seem especially likely. Dutch records from 1645 and a Chinese record from 1717 both note wild tea in Taiwan. But picking it was difficult. No one here knew how to prepare it, and not many people seemed to be drinking it either. Around 1800, a Chinese immigrant called Ke Chao brought seedlings with him from the mountainous interior of southeast China, and these took straight away to northern Taiwan's rainy climate. But this tea was something people drank on their own, and growing it was a side job at best. Even if it had been any good, there were obstacles to selling it from the beginning. As tea production grew during the 1830s, for instance, the imperial government forbade direct trade between Taiwan and foreign nations. It would have to be shipped to mainland ports for processing, but there it would be slapped with an import tax, so it couldn't compete. After the Second Opium War, though, the foreigners barged their way into Taiwan, forcing Taiwanese ports open to trade and prompting a search for profits. A British consul stationed to northern Taiwan after the war noticed that the local tea had potential. John Dodd was a British merchant who came to agree with this assessment. In 1865, he formed a highly successful partnership with Chinese businessman Li Chunsheng. At first, the low price of tea meant that just convincing local farmers to grow this stuff was a challenge. But the merchants' assistance, loans, and promises to buy the crop won the farmers over. Their first crops got good reviews, and in 1869, they sent tons of carefully selected Taiwan oolong to New York. The price shot up after that. Other merchants joined in the fray, and the tea production center these merchants created, now the Taipei neighborhood of Dadaocheng, swelled in size. By the end of the 19th century, it would become Taiwan's second-largest city. Oolong tea was shipped in huge quantities to the U.S., where it found an appreciative audience. But it wasn't the only kind of tea around. Scented Baojong tea developed after unscrupulous merchants put so much filler in their oolong that it couldn't be sold. In the end, they had to scent the tea with the fragrance from flowers in order to salvage it. This style of tea became hugely popular in Southeast Asia, and its production spread to Taiwan. With both oolong and baojong tea in high demand, the Taipei area close to the tea plantations came to support an army of tea workers. There were tea technicians, tea processors, flower growers, flower hawkers, tea sorters, tea porters, tea agents, and at the top of it all, a few wealthy head merchants. Some have their life stories written on the wall here. These include Lin Weiyuan, a businessman extraordinaire whose jobs included running Taiwan's biggest tea firm. 
The profits from his various businesses made him Taiwan's richest man. To be sure, not all of Taiwan's tea was high quality. Northern Taiwan trade reports from the 1870s note that some of the tea was just plain below par. It was over-roasted, under-roasted, had too many stems, and all sorts of filler. But merchants like John Dodd, Li Chunsheng, and Lin Weiyuan made their names and amassed money. 1895 was the start of a second chapter for Taiwanese tea. Japan and Imperial China fought a war, and Japan walked away with Taiwan as its prize. Japanese authorities also saw potential in Taiwan's tea, and they brought a modern, scientific approach to growing it in their new colony. New strains were bred, cultivation was improved, and better processes and machines were brought in. During the 50 years of Japanese rule, the colonial government was also proactive about marketing the tea. They organized local competitions and pushed the tea at international expos and world's fairs. Here at the museum, there are certificates and awards for Taiwanese tea. There are souvenir postcards showing major tea areas on a map and stressing Taiwan's exotic palm trees and colorful temples. Then there are the ads, paintings of young women next to the words Formosa Oolong. For Taiwan, this was also the era of a new game-changing tea, black tea. Experiments with black tea in the late imperial years hadn't produced the right results. But in the 1920s, it arrived for good. A Japanese researcher called Arai Kokichiro helped get the right plants from Assam in India to Taiwan's central highlands. Eventually, this Taiwanese black tea was selling well in London. Arai's timing was excellent, too. Overproduction in India, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia had driven black tea prices down. Just as growers in these areas were agreeing about cutting production, Taiwanese black tea entered the scene and made up the difference. After 1934, Taiwan was exporting more black tea than either of its old hits, Oolong or Baozhong. And with tea now making up 29% of Taiwan's exports, that was a lot of black tea being sold. With all the money his work would bring in, it's no wonder that villagers near Arai's tea research station in central Taiwan still regard the man as a kind of guardian spirit of a nearby mountain. But within a few years, Taiwan, as a Japanese colony, would be dragged into World War II. Shipping was blocked, laborers left for the front, and tea plantations either lay abandoned or were given over to food crops. The end of the war and the end of Japanese rule that came with it ended a second chapter for Taiwanese tea. The third chapter has had its ups and downs. After a rough start, things started looking up for a while. The new Republic of China government made it easier for farmers to get land, and tea experts from mainland China introduced varieties of green tea that had never been produced in Taiwan before. Long centered in northern Taiwan, tea production now spread south and deep into the mountains, amid the belief that higher-altitude oolong was better. But the conditions weren't there for the huge exports of the past. In the 1970s, there was a trend for tea houses with a nostalgic, old-fashioned atmosphere. But as these tea houses were opening, Taiwan was industrializing rapidly, People left rural areas, and therefore tea. 
Fewer people and rising wages also meant that Taiwanese tea wasn't competitive. The nail in the coffin came in 1985 with the decision to allow imports of tea. Since then, imports have surged. But local tea has adapted. Competitions have raised its standards, and rigid controls on how tea is made have been dropped, allowing farmers to be adaptable too. The result has been award-winning teas that have fetched higher and higher sums, and that might even sell out within seconds of coming on the market. These limited edition teas are almost like collector's items. And of course, domestically, local tea brewed the old-fashioned way still has its loyal fans among ordinary people. They're still drinking the oolongs, baojongs, black teas, and other new types of tea, enjoying what's become almost like a wine map of local character. And they still come to tea towns just like Pinglin here to try a cup of Taiwanese history. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Centers for Disease Control is cautioning people about traveling to countries that have been affected by COVID-19. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to talk to you about those travel advisories. All right. 60 seconds. Are you ready? I am. Go. All right. First of all, if you've seen travel advisories with different colors, those are the Foreign Ministries system, which warns about everything from health issues to political unrest. Now, the CDC advisories are related specifically to diseases, and they use numbers, not colors. Let's have a look at the uh, advisories for COVID-19. Now, level one, watch out and respect local prevention measures. Level two, stay alert and take precautions when traveling. And level three is a warning to avoid non-essential travel. Now, in the past week, Taiwan raised advisories to level two for several countries. In Japan, confirmed cases surpassed 100, including numerous cases of community infection. Iran saw cases surging past 100. It now has more fatalities than any other country outside of China. And Italy saw a spike in cases, becoming the hardest-hit country in Europe. And South Korea has also been raised to a level three, with the number of cases second only to China. Good job. Thank you. So I think there are also some quarantine measures for people returning from those countries. Right? Can you tell us about that? That's right. So if you've come back from a country uh, that is a level one or level two travel advisory country, then you need to monitor your own health for 14 days. And that includes things like wearing a mask, avoiding public areas, uh, frequent hand washing. I mean, that's something that a lot of us should do. And taking your temperature too. But they also have to take their temperature right. twice a day. And if you notice anything or you have a problem, a health problem, then you should contact 1922. Now, it gets tricky when it comes to the four places that are level three warning spots. And again, that's China, Hong Kong, Macau, and South Korea as of the recording of this program. If you've been in South Korea over the last 14 days, when you come to Taiwan, then you need to go into quarantine for 14 days. Self-quarantine at home, and there are very specific rules about that. Oh. Yeah. So uh, the tricky part is if you've been to China or Hong Kong or Macau in the last 14 days. Now, if you're a Taiwan uh, citizen, you have a Taiwan passport, you come to Taiwan, 
You have to go into quarantine for 14 days. In your own home or somewhere else? It's also in your own okay. home. Uh, unless you've been evacuated. Mm -hmm. That's a different story. Uh, if you are not... Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs>